0: Also, the second account of two spiritualities, Mary and Judas. John chapter 12, and reading at verse one, and down through to the end of verse 11. Chapter 12 actually sort of begins in an odd place. It sort of begins back in chapter 11, You maybe take note of it there, that it's connected into the 12th chapter bring in the context of the Passover. Chapter 12, so six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound. Expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with their hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Lord Uh, just a reminder of some of the announcements uh, from this morning that Pastor Camp gave. Uh, Bible study, the last one, uh, is coming Tuesday evening on Zoom. And then in the month of August, you see the lectures there that are on Tuesday evening, except for the one during Camp Week, which will also be for the public, for those who would like to attend in the evening. And also just take note of some of the prayer requests and also the needs that were intimated uh, this morning about camp for sponsorship, uh, or assistance in the kitchen, or for any other ways that there might be uh, help for uh, providing things that are needed. As they were this morning. Okay. Let us continue. Then we'll sing from Psalm number one. Number one. This evening is two spiritualities. Which way will it be? And in Scripture, we often find this, Scripture has a way of putting together a contrast in a specific passage of Scripture in the text, especially in the story narratives of Scripture. And that character contrast is brought out between two individuals, and you see it very strikingly. There's that striking difference between two people. We're not talking about a racial difference, we're not talking about wearing some kind of clothing garment, but we're talking about a spiritual difference. The very heart of two people is contrasted. The very spiritual makeup of what really matters spiritually is put in stark contrast between what one believes and what the other believes, and what they know is the way to God, and the way not to God. And so there is this contrast that is there. If you're a student of English literature, you will have seen it, if you recall, reading Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a gifted character, a contraster. He delighted in bringing contrast in his great works of literature. Jane Austen does it. Emily Bronte does it. You can think of all the great literature works. They use this technique of contrasting two people so that their heart is exposed in a radically different way. In literature, we call it as a foil, the foil of two characters. And you may recall, and some of us recall perhaps, the time you went to buy a diamond ring. And you go into the jeweler's shop, and the jeweler, of course, pours out, pulls out all the diamond rings. But what else does he pull out? He or she will pull out usually that foil. It's not foil now, but it would be a black piece of velvet. And then on that velvet, they bring out the diamond and they say, Oh, look at the contrast here. See the beauty of the diamond. And you see it because it's on a foil. That's where the word foil comes from to look at the diamond ring, to see its quality, and it was brought into literature, and it's brought into the Scripture. You see it here, and you see it with Cain and Abel, and you will see it with Mary of Bethany, and with Judas. It's to expose their characters, and to contrast them before us. And what you see then are two spiritualities, and it always leads to question. Which way will it be for you? So in John chapter 12, we come to that as our main text here. Mary of Bethany is going to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ. And Judas, of course, is annoyed. He's angered by all of this. And immediately when you come to John chapter 12, if you've been studying the scripture, you immediately come to a question and say, how many anointings of Jesus are there in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You can read about one in Matthew 26. You can read about another in Mark chapter 14. And you can read of another given in Luke 7, and then the final one in John 12. Well, uh, this evening, I'm not going to go through all the background but trying to convince you how many there are. I believe there are fundamentally two, and I'm open to think that there are actually three different accounts of anointings. One, I think, took place in the north, in Galilee. I think that's evident. The second one (laughs) took place here in Bethany, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Totally different locations, and with different people. Don't be caught off guard because someone is called Simon in the Bible. There are so many Simons in that period of time, you can't uh, really use that. Simon the leper, Simon the Pharisee, and others. So I think there's probably two, at least, anointings of Jesus, but I think there very well could be three separate occasions of anointing, and each brings something out in some way. Now, this anointing here is a celebration. It's a feast. It would be comparable, in a sense, to your Christmas dinner on December 25th. It would be comparable to a Canadian Thanksgiving or an American Thanksgiving. It's getting together and celebrating and being happy with those friends you enjoy, your family members you enjoy. And so chapter 12 of John is a celebratory event. Why? Why? Because Jesus has brought from the dead Lazarus. And if you can't get together and have a meal and celebrate about that, what can you eat for? It's a time to be happy and joyful. And yet mixed with that is the Passover. And the theme. This is one of the last great public events before the private discourses and the crucifixion. But the context of the theme is certainly God through Jesus Christ has done amazing things in what Jesus has done. And we need to give thanks and celebrate. So there's the context, and so there's this beautiful feast that has been put together here in Bethany just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And Lazarus is there, and probably Simon the leper is there. It may even be in Simon's house, or it may be in Mary and Martha's house, or the house of Lazarus perhaps here. But they're having this meal. I want you to look at three things with me as we look at this tonight. Number one, Mary presents before us the way of a loving disciple. She shows us the way of being a loving disciple of Jesus. Secondly, Judas presents the way of rejecting Jesus Christ and the way of a heart that is grown by degrees in hardness of rejection towards the Savior and towards the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Mary. Mary. Judas, and then Jesus, comes and gives the final word, and Judas vindicates and gives instruction further into all of this. Mary, the way of the loving disciple. We in church, especially if you've been around churches for a while, or Sunday school, or even in popular culture, this is sort of a familiar story. Mary has her pound of ointment, or a pound of pasty oily substance. I didn't realize until this week that the technical name for it, and I've never heard of it. Not being a chemist, pungent, proper name for the chemical property that is recorded here—and so the great commentators call it. She had produced this ungiat. Well, there you go. I. I hope that will be a good word for us, probably in the streets. But there she brings it out, and immediately we say, where did she obtain such an expensive product? Well, it was probably an inheritance. They were common objects or giving from one family to another, or to inherit in some way. That's one theory. There are all kinds of theories about it. She could have been working for someone, and they gave it to her. You can create whatever... Idea you want. But she takes this ointment that is extremely expensive and it's in a glass container of some kind or pottery container and she smashes the neck off it, which means now it is all must be consumed or used in one go. And the house immediately fills with this pungent odor and it just begins to overtake the entire house. So there is this smell of this aroma that fills the place. And then what does she do? Body language is key in the whole text. She immediately kneels down, and she begins at the feet of Jesus, and she starts pouring this pasty substance, which is probably from the Indian uh, subcontinent somewhere, but she's kneeling. And as she kneels, she does what a Jewish woman would not do. She takes her hair out of its upper position, and she begins to let it flow down, something a Jewish woman would never think of doing. So if you want to learn about hairstyles here this evening, the story here revolves around the hairstyle of Jewish women in the first century A.D. Hair did not flow in a woman down. It had to be bundled up and held up. But she lets it down. She has become like one of the African servants in some way that is not concerned about her hair from Ethiopia. She is concerned not to be seen as a respectful Jewish woman of her culture and her period. Something is happening. And what is happening is twofold. The smell is a reminder that this is a pleasure to the Lord. And secondly, as she kneels in humility, she will become a servant. And as you hold that chapter together, you immediately think of Jesus wiping the feet of his own disciples. She is the servant. She is being humble, and she is there submissive to her Lord. What's going on? Well, there are three primary things that are going on. Number one, She was showing her absolute devotion of heart and will symbolically to the lord and savior jesus christ she knows who he is he is the one who is the anointed of god who has the power to bring back the dead to life he is not an ordinary person She knows that he is the divine one, the anointed, the Messiah of God. She has knowledge about him, but her knowledge is sufficient now to realize that you are to kneel before him, that you are to give your all to him, and that you are to become submissive to him and to be adoring to him. So we see three things in all of this activity. Number one, he is prepared to be submissive to the Lord. Secondly, she wants to adore him and present worship to him and to give her worship from her heart extravagantly, not begrudgingly, to the Lord. And then thirdly, she is prepared to make a sacrifice. A sacrifice of her most precious possession of sacrifice of what is in her possession of great value. It's a sign of submissiveness to the Lord. It's a sign of declaration, adoration, love, and worship. It is a sign of sacrifice, sacrificing all that she has, for the sake of the lord john Layton wilson someone i've been studying recently he was uh, a great missionary contemporary of david livingston when he was in west equatorial africa and he said it like this self-denial and personal sacrifices on the part of friends of the redeemer are the chief seed almost the only means by which the kingdom is advanced in this world The mark of true Christian discipleship is sacrifice of time, wealth, and life. And what do you see here with Mary of Bethany? She is prepared to make sacrifice of what is precious in her life. It is sacrificial giving as a disciple of Christ. Mary points to us in the direction of the way of a spiritually gifted and blessed woman who is a loving disciple of jesus christ she is prepared to sacrifice she is prepared to show her adoration her worship from her heart in the cultural context there and she is prepared to be submissive to the knowledge she understands now of the lord there was a korean hymn writer in new york Chong Quang Park, who took this text and put it to, to prose, or to uh, measure. In my precious Lord, I break my ass with with oil. Kneeling down, I kiss his feet, and drink them with the oil. Quang Park was saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You can ask a question of this text. The question is, where is Mary of Bethany's treasure? It is not in that flask. It is in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is Mary's real treasure? She has come to know who Christ is. The Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed. And she is prepared to put her treasure there because that's where her heart is. She fulfills as a living demonstration the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 21 Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Mary's heart, you can identify and you know, is in the Lord Jesus Christ in faith as a disciple of His mary's motive for such gracious sacrifice and love was not the motive of the attention seeker have you ever thought of that can you imagine someone coming to the text and saying oh you know what she was doing she was one of those attention-seeking disciples i've read that once or twice and it's just chilling are there indications in the text that this is an attention-seeking woman? There are none. Her motives, the root of her heart, is that out of the overflow of love, devotion, sacrifice, and submission, she is giving her all. She is not motivated by attention-seeking. She is motivated by one thing, grace to undeserving sinners results in sacrifice of discipleship, the overflowing heart of worship, and the desire to submit and kneel before the Lord. Her motive this for the glory of her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we look at this, one last thing with Mary, we just take note of perhaps a few other things that Jesus will alert us to. Is she fully aware of the context of the Passover week and of his movement into Jerusalem? Perhaps she is to a degree but Jesus will bring forth that momentarily. So we'll leave that for the moment. Are you motivated by a heart of love, devotion, and submission? That out of the overflow of the heart, we give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bottom question of our text. Judas is the foil in verses 4 and verse 6. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, "Why was this wine, when not sold for three hundred denarii, I have given to the poor?" Verses four and six is this great character contrast of another spiritual life, of another person's heart, and you see a very different heart emerging here in Judas. In fact, Judas's heart is compared with the heart. Of the Pharisees down to later in verse 10 and in verse 11 many of the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus many of the Jews of course were plotting to kill Jesus so you see their heart as well but here we see it in a particular individual and that individuals heart is brought out here is the individual of the heart of Judas and he comes across first with this very spiritual social justice argument it is an argument of all sort of the spirit of species digression to get you away from the real subject matter now let's look at this argument in verse five he says well i'm annoyed at this this was a year's wages we could have fed a lot of poor people. Now, let's look at this argument. Is it a good argument? On the surface, yes. A lot of good could have been done. We call that today social welfare. The actual mer- mercy ministry in civil society it would be called social justice. Give to those who don't have it give them food, provide for their beings. Social justice, diaconal work, mercy ministry, doing charity, doing good. All those things seem commendable. But there's something wrong with the argument. And what is wrong with the argument is his heart, is his motive. Of course, you and I may not always see the good of the heart of people. But the word of God, is when it is brought out, cuts into a heart that even will sometimes show and argue to do righteous things that on the surface may look wonderfully good. the heart, people, if so to say, sees. And deception. We cannot always see it. His argument is a false argument, as Jesus will deal with it in a few moments, and so I'll leave that for then. But what he is doing, he is trying to take what this woman did and he is trying to deflect it from his own spiritual problem. It's a very good technique. And that's what he's trying to do. There's something deeply wrong here. We are looking at an imposter. We are looking at a counterfeit disciple. Here is the true disciple, Mary of Bethany. Here is the counterfeit disciple. He is an office bearer in the church. He is an apostle. And he's a counterfeit. He's a thief. He's been stealing all along. Now it's interesting, John provides us these details. But there's no knowledge that John knew of all these things. There's no acquaintance of that. But now things are being revealed in this final week. Counterfeit Christianity, true spiritual Christianity versus false, counterfeit Christianity. I want to read something to you that I read recently. Counterfeit spirituality. John himself was deceived, as were the other disciples and apostles. True evil comes in a disguise. If you want to find the disguise, don't look amongst the atheists. Don't look amongst the agnostics. Look in the church. This is Ray Steadman who said this fifty, seventy years ago. Sitting in pews, teaching Sunday school preaching in pulpits, running soup kitchens for the church. You will find it there. Now, those are very harsh words, aren't they? Are there disguises in the church? Are there counterfeits in the church? The answer is, of course I We are shocked, we're surprised, when we find a counterfeit, when we find an evil disguise. And this week, as the Pope comes to Canada and you hear the discussions, it's still all going forward, you're gonna hear about all kinds of disguises and counterfeits. But you do not need to look to the Roman Catholic Church to find it. Protestantism has its history as well. Judas contrasts with Mary. The scripture says he is an evil man. He's a counterfeit. And yet he's a self-confessed disciple. What should one say then about Judas here? The problem is the question when anyone ever comes to Judas is one word, hyphenated, self-examination. When we read the story of Judas, it is the story of self-examination. Am I really in Christ? Or am I wearing a disguise? Am I in Christ Jesus? That's what the question here of Judas is about. Judas had great privileges. Far greater privileges than me. Three years in the school of Jesus Christ. Many have had great privileges in gospel ministry and churches where they sat under some of the finest gospel ministry in the world. For years, 20 years, 30 years. Judas here has had great privileges. Three years he saw the miracles. Three years he heard of Jesus. Three years he saw repeatedly the kindness of Christ. He was counted an apostle, yet he was rotten in his heart. This may seem impossible, but the case of Judas reminds us that is reality. So the first application, as we look at Judas' number one, is to self-examine our own hearts and to be sure who we are in the motive of the soul. If I am I in Christ? is by heart being sacrificial to him. You can deceive one another, but we cannot deceive the Lord. There is the first application. The second application is this. Judas did not come to this point. All of a sudden. There are three years of steps to get to this point of the last week when he will shortly after this anointing betray Jesus Christ. There's a reminder that spiritual decline takes place little on little. It is gradual. if It is not ch- unchecked. You remember the old hymn? No one wants to sing it anymore. It's under the fashion. Moody and psyche. Yield not to temptation for yielding sin. It's a reminder here that in Judas there have been steps that have led to this place. There have been activities that have brought him there. It is sort of like water in your sink. You come back two hours later and there's no water left, but you put the plug in the sink. Where did the water go? Slowly by slowly, that plug is not working. You've got a leak. Judas, slowly by slowly, was allowing his heart to be taken over by the evil one. And so he went that way. It's a call to self examination. It's a reminder that spiritual decline does not happen in a sudden instant, it is preceded. By steps of slow spiritual decline. Be born. Take one. Thirdly, what was the root of his sin? The root of his sin can be summed up in one word: covetousness. He was a man who loved material matters and material things and earthly treasure more than he did spiritual treasure. The scripture reminds us, and we'll see later as we read on. He was a man who wanted some property. He wanted to be a landowner. He wanted a field. Well, the sin was the sin of covetousness. Earthly treasure pulled him away from spiritual things. The story of Judas is always contemporary. The story of judas is not ancient history the story of judas is today it is tonight it is always a call to self-examination it is always a warning that stages of decline will take place it is always a reminder that we can all be caught and deceived by the material by the accumulation by the treasure that is not just spiritual but our bonds and securities and equities can become to us a very much a spiritual millstone. It's always to remind them that the heart must find its eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart must be in the blood of Christ, filled in his love as the one we need. Finally, I would say there is a lesson here from Judas that there is such a thing as temporary faith. Uh, we don't need to go into all of these deep matters here, but in a sense Judas may have shown certain intellectual aspects of temporary faith. If you believe in what Jesus is doing, you probably could have said to you in year one, sure I believe in Jesus. I'm following him, aren't I? And you would have said, oh, so you're a believing disciple. It's sort of a, A faith, a type of faith. But there are many kinds of faith. And Judas exhibits what is sort of called a temporary, almost nostalgic, romantic, even political, intellectual faith. But like morning dew, it will be gone by noon. And Judas and all his temporal political faith in Christ and aspirations and hopes fades away and it is gone. So it is with gospel privilege. If you're a child of Jesus Christ, your faith will be anchored in him if you've been raised as a young child in a Christian home, you can show signs of faith But as years pass along, those signs will be revealed if they're real and genuine or what kind of faith you really have. The things that Judas put his faith in will pass away. But the one who Mary put her faith in will never pass away. Where is your faith? Finally, Judas, Mary, here's the words of Jesus in verse 7. And Jesus vindicates Mary and her action. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, Judas. Leave her alone. Leave her alone." Jesus came to Mary's defense. There is not to be any suspicion cast upon her, for she has done the right. He proves that she is right. Jesus accepts her gifts. Jesus affirms her as a woman and what she has done for her faith in the Lord. And Jesus even gives it added meaning beyond what she may have even fully comprehended that week of the Passover. And that added meaning that Jesus gives to her is so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is the week that Christ Jesus shall die and in death there is anointing and she has now anointed me it's not the time factor of future tense present past it is this it is the meaning she has anointed following the cross. That's the extraordinary thing. And Jesus vindicates, affirms, accepts and is really pointing us to the cross. She has done what is necessary for the cross. And then finally Jesus says, I remind you Where the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I will go to the cross, I will die and be resurrected, and I will ascend to heaven. You will not have me with you forever. It is a prophetic statement of the resurrection of Christ, it is a prophetic proclamation of the ascension of Christ. And it is a reminder that the constant duty of a believer is yes to be practicing neighborly love to those who are poor and diagonally showing mercy. That is not to be absconded. You must take it seriously for neighborly love. It's the second table of the law. What is the second table of the law? To love your neighbor. Jesus does not wipe that out at all. It's a permanent duty. But you need to discern here that this is an extraordinary event. It is the extraordinary event of the atonement of Christ at the cross. And Mary's act of submission and humility and the fragrance of the offering. Is to recognize the extraordinary, unrepeated event, and to show the ordinary now after you arise from this. To my precious Lord, I bring my flask of fragrant oil. Kneeling down, I kiss his feet, anoint them with the oil. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. A heart's treasure for Jesus our heart's treasure for a field and for money and for the world here is the question which way